Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. The following is an episode of Rawcast Recycle. This piece was originally recorded on the now defunct show Rawcast the Antisocial Commentary Podcast. However, the content does specifically relate to psychedelia, and we think there's some good information here. So if you notice some inconsistencies, that's just kind of the way it is due to the recording process. We are just recycling these for Psychedelicast. We hope that you enjoy this show just as much as our regular episodes. Good evening, good morning, Rawcasters. Depending where you are in time and space, good evening, good morning, good night to you. Glad to be back with you guys again here for a 40th episode of Rawcast, the Antisocial Commentary Podcast. We're going to do one that I've been looking forward to doing for quite a while now. Um, we're going to get into it here in just a moment, some jungle medicine. First, let's do our promotions and our sponsorships. CBD's Apothecary, take it away, baby. If you're interested in the medicinal benefits of cannabis, but concerned with the legal and professional ramifications of using marijuana, then CBD's Apothecary is a one-stop shop for all your CBD needs. People all over the world are turning to CBD to alleviate stress and anxiety, get better sleep, reduce inflammation, relieve pain, and so much more. CBD's Apothecary curates a full line of branded and lab-tested CBD products. Visit www.cbdsapothecary.com to shop our CBD oils, edibles, topicals, and supplements. CBD's Apothecary is also home to the only CBD-infused nut edible on the planet, CBD's Nuts. Our edibles start at just $5 a bag, and our 1,000 milligram CBD oil is only $60. We have specifically priced our products to make CBD affordable and accessible to everyone. So shop now at www.cbdsapothecary.com. That's www.cbdeezapothecary.com. Rawcast listeners enjoy 10% off total purchase at checkout with the promo code Rawcast. Thanks, CBD's Apothecary. As always, much appreciative, uh, much appreciative to CBD's Apothecary. We were actually out there at the Texas Wine and Art Fall Festival in gorgeous Old Town Springs last weekend. We did pretty good on Saturday, had a slow day on Sunday, but there were several other CBD vendors on site. Um, last time we did it, we had no competition, and that's kind of how I like it. But all in all, uh, we had a good time. We made some sales. We made some people happy. And uh, we'll be doing it again come uh, mid-April uh, at the Texas Wine and Art Festival twice a year. We're going to try to make that a very regular appearance um, because we like that festival. So without further ado, let's hear one more pop promotion, one more sponsorship from the homies over there at PodCoin. 
What's up, guys? We hope that you're enjoying Rawcast, and if you are, you need to check out Podcoin. It's the app that pays you to listen to this podcast and every podcast. It's the podcast player that pays. Just get on the Podcoin app on iPhone or Android, super free and easy to use. You can use the Podcoin you earn to claim gift cards or donate it to charity. This is an amazing app. It turns your podcast listening into charity, or if you like, just get some Amazon or Starbucks gift cards. I use the Podcoin app to do all my podcast listening now, and I love it. Go get on the App Store and Android today. Seriously, just go get the app and use invite code RAWCAST. You'll get 300 Podcoin for just signing up if you use my code. That's 300 Podcoin just for signing up if you use code RAWCAST. Go give Podcoin a try today. Once again, Rawcasters, thank you for being with us. Um, We have a very special episode for you tonight, one I've been excited to do for a long time. I've been waiting for the right time, and this beautiful Saturday morning at 2.05 a.m., this is the right time. Because tomorrow afternoon, around 5.30 p.m., I am boarding a flight bound for Mexico City to connect me to Lima, Peru, to eventually connect me to Cuzco, Peru, in the Sacred Valley, of which I'll land Sunday morning very early. What am I doing in the Sacred Valley of Cuzco, Peru um, next week? I'm gonna be, um, I'm gonna be partaking in a traditional shamanic ceremony, uh, group ceremony known as uh, an ayahuasca ceremony, the drinking of a potent Amazonian psychedelic brew, jungle medicine, depending on uh, how you want to look at it. We'll break that down here in a bit. Um, And uh, I've been wanting, this is something I've been called to do, I felt a calling to do many years ago. Um, I've been researching and trying to get, figure out when and how exactly I was going to do it. And the time is finally here. So yes, next week I will be in Cuzco, Peru to drink the to drink from the vine of the soul, also known as the ayahuasca vine, or um, by its scientific name, the Banisteriopsis copy vine. So, let's get into this. What is ayahuasca? Let's start with a little bit of the history of ayahuasca, then we're going to kind of move into the pharmacology, the effects. Um, what is ayahuasca used for? Archetypes found in the ayahuasca experience, various different things. Of the numerous plant hallucinogens utilized by indigenous populations of the Amazon basin, perhaps none is as interesting or complex botanically, chemically, or ethnographically as the hallucinogenic beverage known variously as ayahuasca, kapi, or yage. The beverage is most widely known as ayahuasca, a huecha term meaning vine of the soul. This term is applied to both the beverage itself and to one of the source plants used in the preparation of said beverage. Um, this plant we're referring to is the Banisteriopsis copy aforementioned. In Brazil, transliteration of this Huecha word into Portuguese results in the name Hoasca. Ayahuasca, or Hoasca, occupies a central position in mestizo ethnomedicine, and the chemical nature of its active constituents and the manner of its use make its study relevant to contemporary issues in neuropharmacology, neurophysiology, and psychiatry. In a traditional context, ayahuasca is a beverage prepared by boiling or soaking the bark and stems of the Banisteriopsis copy vine together with various admixture plants. The admixture employed most commonly is the rubaceous genus Psychotria, particularly P. viridius. The leaves of P. viridius contain alkaloids that are necessary for the psychoactive effect. Ayahuasca is unique in that its pharmacological activity is dependent on a synergistic interaction between the active alkaloids in these plants. One of the components, the bark of the Banisteriopsis copy, contains B-carboline alkaloids, which are potent potent MAO inhibitors, uh, monoamine oxidization inhibitors, if I'm saying that correctly, I believe I am. I'm not a chemist. The other components, the leaves of the Psychotria viridis or related species, contain the potent, short-acting psychoactive agent NN-dimethyltryptamine or DMT, NMDMT. NNDMT is actually the DMT that most people are familiar with in a freebase form that can be smoked, of which I have some experience with, not a, not a deep experience uh, or uh, breadth of experience, but I do have some 
um, experience smoking or freebasing dimethyltryptamine. I know that sounds bad. Unless you've freebased dimethyltryptamine before or DMT, then you understand that it is bad as the – well, it can go bad, but it's usually the most um, astonishing, unbelievable, mind-blowing, brain-shattering, earth in, earth-enveloping, insane experiences that you can have um, short of dying. Once again, you may even actually feel that you are dying when smoking DMT. But the DMT is actually not orally active when ingested um, solo. It can be rendered orally active in the presence of peripheral MAOI. Um, this is where the Banisteriopsis copyvine comes in. This interaction is the basis of the psychotropic action of ayahuasca. Layman's terms, minus all of the scientific jargon and mumbo-jumbo, basically what we're saying here is that Ayahuasca requires at least two plants in the brew to become hallucinogenically active. One plant contains dimethyltryptamine or DMT. Another plant contains um, an MAOI. And in this case, somehow in the Amazonian jungle, these indigenous people for hundreds of not pardon me, for hundreds and thousands of years have discovered the perfect two plants to combine to create this hallucinogen brew. Neither one of these plants offer you a hallucinogenic or a psychedelic experience or a mystical experience by themselves. They must be combined to become orally active, to cause the DMT to become orally active. So if that makes sense, it's very simple. You have to have both of these plants in order to make ayahuasca. Either one of the plants by itself is not useless, but will not garner the same effect. The origins of the use of ayahuasca in the Amazon basins are lost in the mists of prehistory. No one can say for certain where the practice may have originated, and about all that can be stated with certainty is that it was already spread among numerous indigenous tribes throughout the Amazon basin by the time ayahuasca came to the attention of Western eth ethnographers in the mid-19th century. This fact alone argues for its antiquity. Beyond that, little is known. Plutarco Naranjo, the Ecuadorian ethnographer, has summarized what little information is available on the prehistory of ayahuasca. There is abundant archaeological evidence in the form of pottery vessels, anthrop anthropomorphic figurines, snuffing trays, and tubes that plant hallucinogen was well established in the Ecuadorian Amazon by 1500 to 2000 BC. That's before Christ. Unfortunately, most of the specific evidence in the form of vegetable powders, snuff trays, and pipes is related to the use of psychoactive plants other than ayahuasca, such as cocoa, tobacco, and the hallucinogen snuff derived from the Anandenanthera species known as Vilca and various other names, of which I actually have experience with this as well. Um, the seeds of another Amazonian plant known as uh, Yopo colloquially um, contain small contain trace amounts of NNDMT as well as another potent super potent hallucinogen known as 5-MeO-DMT and trace amounts of another uh, hallucinogen known as bufotenin. So these little yopo seeds contain as well as various other tryptamine um, hallucinogen traces but the most prominent um, aspect of the yopo seed is that 5-MeO-DMT you can order these seeds online from the various Amazon sellers, ship them straight here to America, and create relatively simply a very, very potent um, psychedelic snuff. Or um, a its use is to be it's used by insufflation. It's snorted. Um, I do have experience with this. It burns really bad. It's really strong. The body the body load is extreme. It makes you feel like your body weighs a ton, almost as if you could fall asleep as soon as you insufflate. Followed there very shortly thereafter by what I would categorize as dense and somewhat dark um, hallucinations or visions. Although I wouldn't call them scary or bad. Um, it's just kind of a. I went down like basically a. Uh, like an infinite spiral inside of a very dark tunnel with just fractal geometry all around me, but of a very dark nature as opposed to other psychedelics, which generally will give you similar geometric patterns and tunneling and spiraling, but with more 
vibrant colors and um, archetypes. Um, this trip just seemed pretty dark. The onset is within five minutes. Uh, the duration is probably roughly, depending on how much you insufflate or ingest, I would say anywhere from 25 to 50 minutes. Um, and it's, I would, it's pretty uncomfortable because the way that you have to produce the snuff, it has to be mixed with a pickling lime or NaOH. Um, and it's, it burns the nasal cavities just because of its slightly caustic nature. So while you are experiencing this dense, heavy, introspective vision, you are in a relative amount of pain from your sinus and nasal passages being inflamed and angry because you just snorted this strange caustic material. Um, I personally wasn't a huge fan of it, although I definitely will try it. Uh, I'll definitely give it further uh, experimentation in the future. Um, so we got off on a little tangent there, but we're talking about um, the findings, uh, archaeological findings of these snuffing tubes. So basically, in traditional use, they will use a bone or a wooden tube carved out to insufflate these various hallucinogen snuffs. That's how we got there. And that's what we're talking about. There's nothing in the form of icono uh, iconographic materials or preserved botanical remains that would unequivocally establish the prehistoric use of ayahuasca. Though it is probable that these pre-Columbian cultures, sophisticated as they were in the use of a variety of psychotropic plants, were also familiar with ayahuasca and its preparation. The lack of data is frustrating, however, particularly in respect to a question that has fascinated ethnopharmacologists since the late 1960s, when its importance was first brought to light through the works of Richard Schultes and his students. As mentioned above, ayahuasca is unique among plant hallucinogens in that it is prepared from a combination of two plants, the barks or stems of Banisteriopsis species, together with the leaves of Psychotria species or other DMT-containing admixtures. The beverage depends on this unique combination for its activity. There seems small likelihood of accidentally combining the two plants to obtain an active preparation when neither is particularly active alone. Yet we know that at some point in prehistory, this fortuitous combination was discovered. And at that point, ayahuasca was quote-unquote invented. So this is the part that always trips me out, and I'm sure has tripped out, you know, no pun intended, has tripped out everyone who has studied this or become interested in this over time. How in the fuck did these indigenous peoples in the Amazonian basin find the combination out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of species of plants that exist in the Amazon the perfect combination to create this hyperpotent psychedelic in the jungle. It just does, it's like, it defies um, comprehension. But we're going to talk some more about why uh, the indigenous shamans, why and how they say that came to be. So just how this discovery was made and who was responsible, we may actually never know, there are, though there are several charming myths that address the topic. Mestizo ayahuascaros in Peru will to this day tell you that this knowledge comes directly from the plant teachers. Um, this is another name for various psychoactive and psychotropic plants used in Peruvian shamanism. They refer to them as plant teachers or plant medicines. They believe that the plants actually have spirits that can communicate with humans and do communicate with humans and teach us things. While the mistress of the Brazilian syncretic cult, the UDV, will tell you with equal conviction that the knowledge came from the quote-unquote first scientist, King Solomon, who imparted, the, who imparted the technology to the Inca king during a little publicized visit to the New World in antiquity. In the absence of data, these explanations are all that we have. All that we can say with confidence is that the knowledge of the techniques for preparing ayahuasca, including knowledge of the appropriate admixture plants, has diffused throughout the Amazon by the time the use of ayahuasca came to the attention of any modern researcher. So there are several legends within the ayahuasca pantheon of how humans discovered the mixture. One that I read, one that I enjoyed, was that a beautiful maiden would go down to the banks of the Amazon every day and she would bathe in the cool waters of the Amazon. 
there was a tree there or a shrub there that would shade her while she was bathing. When she would be finished bathing, she would use the vine of the use the ayahuasca vine of which she was unaware to pull herself from the Amazon River. And she would take the leaves from the tree that shaded her, which was actually the Shakruna tree, the DMT-containing plant, the Shakruna. And she would dry herself with the leaves. And one day, the plant spoke to her, explained who, explained that it was the spirit of the Shakruna tree, the DMT-containing plant, containing plant. And it also explained to her that the ayahuasca vine that she had used to pull herself out of the river was the Banisteriopsis copy, the vine of the souls, the vine of the dead. And if she combined those two in a brew, brewed tea, then she would have ayahuasca. So that's just one of the several different mythologies or legends surrounding the discovery or creation or invention of ayahuasca. The archaeological prehistory of ayahuasca is likely to remain inextricably bound up with its mythical origins for the rest of time, unless some artifact should be uncovered that would unequivocally establish the antiquity of its usage. By contrast, what might be called the modern or the scientific history of ayahuasca is traceable to 1851, when the great English botanist Richard Spruce encountered the use of an intoxicating beverage among the Tucano of the Rio Uapes in Brazil. Spruce collected flowering specimens from the large jungle liana used as the source of the beverage, and this collection was the basis for his classification of the plant as Banisteriopsis copy. Seven years later, Spruce again encountered the same liana in use among the Guajibo in the upper Orinoco, Orinoco of Colombia and Venezuela, and later the same year found the Zaparo of Andean Peru taking a narcotic beverage prepared from the same plant which they called ayahuasca. Although Spruce's discovery predates any other published accounts, he didn't publish his findings until 1873. It was then mentioned in a popular account of his Amazon explorations. A fuller, blah, blah, blah. a fuller exposition was not to appear until Spruce published his account in A.R. Wallace's anthology in 1908, Notes of a Botanist on the Amazon and the Andes. Credit for the earliest published reports of ayahuasca usage belonged to the Ecuadorian geographer Manuel Villa Vicencio, who in 1858 wrote of the use of ayahuasca in sorcery and divination in the upper Rio Napo. Although Villa Vicencio supplied no botanical details about the plant used as the source of the beverage, his account of his own self-intoxication left no doubt in Spruce's mind that they were writing about the same thing. Throughout the remainder of the 19th century, various ethnographers and explorers continued to report on their encounters of the use of an intoxicating beverage prepared by various indigenous Amazonian tribes and purportedly prepared from the roots of various shrubs. Unlike Spruce, who had the presence of mind not only to collect botanical voucher specimens, but also materials designated for eventual chemical analysis, these later investigators did not collect specimens of the plants they observed, and hence their accounts are now of little more than historical importance. One notable exception was Simpson's publication of the use of ayahuasca among Ecuadorians, noticing that they, quote, drank ayahuasca mixed with yagé, sumaruja leaves, and guanto wood at an indulgence which usually results in a broil between at least the partakers of the beverage, end quote. None of the ingredients were identified, nor were voucher specimens collected, but this report is the earliest indication that other admixture species were employed in the preparation of ayahuasca, so it's common for the various shamans within the different, not only countries and regions of the Amazon basin, but even just in the different villages and different, just the different shamans personally themselves, to utilize various other plants within their ayahuasca mixture. So it varies widely depending on who, where, and how the mixture is brewed, what plants are incorporated into the ayahuasca mix. While Richard Spruce and other adventurous Amazonian explorers were collecting the first field reports of ayahuasca from 1851 onward, the groundwork was already being laid for important work on the chemistry of ayahuasca that would take place in the second decade of the 20th century. The 19th century witnessed the birth of natural product chemistry, starting with the isolation of morphine from opium poppies by the German pharmacist Sertuner in 1803. The early decades of the 20th century witnessed the publication of Spruce's detailed accounts of his Amazonian explorations and his observations of the use of the narcotic beverage among several tribes that he contacted. 
Although brief reports had been published earlier by Spruce and others, it was Spruce's account of his travels in a volume edited by the famed naturalist and co-discoverer of evolution A.R. Wallace in 1908 that may have rescued the knowledge of ayahuasca from the depths of academic obscurity and brought it to the attention of educated laypeople. During this early 20th century period, progress in the understanding of ayahuasca took place mainly on only two fronts, taxonomic and chemical. With some notable exceptions, pharmacological investigations of the properties of ayahuasca were relatively quiescent during this period. The botanical history of ayahuasca during this period is an amusing combination of excellent taxonomic detective work by some and egregious errors compounded upon errors by others. Among the investigators who helped to clarify rather than cloud the taxonomic understanding of ayahuasca botany must be mentioned uh, the works of Rusby and White in Bolivia in 1922 and the publication by Morton in 1930 of the field notes made by the botanist Klug in the Colombian Putumayo. From Klug's collection, Morton describes a new species of Banisteriopsis, uh, which is used as a hallucinogen, but he also asserted that at least three different species of bee copy uh, were used similarly and that two other species, Banisteria longialata, longialata and Banisteriopsis rusbiana, may have been used as admixtures to the ayahuasca preparation. The first half of the 20th century was also the period in which the first serious chemical investigations of the active principles of ayahuasca were carried out. Like much of the initial taxonomic work taking place during the same period, scientific progress on this front was marked at first by confusion arising from the simultaneous investigations of several independent groups of investigators. Gradually, as the investigations found their way into the scientific literature, clarity began to emerge from a fairly murky picture. Things began to get slightly better from 1926 into the 1950s. Michaels and Klinkwart isolated an alkaloid they called Yagin from unvouched materials. Shortly afterward, Perot and Hamet isolated a substance that they called telepathine and suggested that it was identical to Yagin. Lewin in 18... Pardon me, Lewin in 1928 isolated an alkaline that he called banisterine. This was shown to be identical with harmine, previously known from the Syrian rue um, by chemists from E. Merck and Co. This was the first time a reversible MAOI had been evaluated for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, though harmine's activity as a reversible MAOI was not discovered until nearly 30 years later. It also represents one of the few instances where a hallucinogenic drug has been clinically evaluated for the treatment of any disease. Um, so there are different types of AOIs. There's a non-reversible MAOI and there's a reversible MAOI. I understand it myself. However, I'm not going to explain it here. If you're really interested in that, go ahead and look it up. The first half of the 20th century witnessed the initial scientific studies of ayahuasca and began to shed some light on the botanical sources of this curious hallucinogen and the nature of its active constituents. During the three decades from 1950 to 1980, botanical and chemical studies continued apace, and new discoveries laid the groundwork for an eventual explanation of the unique pharmacological actions of ayahuasca. While conducting fieldwork together in the Peruvian Amazon in 1985, Terence McKenna and his co-worker Luna first began discussing the possibility of conducting a biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. The superior health of the ayahuascaros, even at advanced ages, seemed remarkable and something that could be amenable to scientific study. The logistical challenges of carrying out such work in Peru, however, seemed daunting since access to storage facilities for plasma samples was limited and local concepts of witchcraft made it unlikely that ayahuascaros would submit to medical procedures such as collection of blood and urine samples. In 1991, however, a fresh opportunity to initiate such a study presented itself in Brazil. McKenna and Luna were among several foreigners invited to participate in a conference in Sao Paulo by the medical studies section of the UNIO de Vegetal, or the UDV, a Brazilian syncretic religion that uses ayahuasca in their ceremonies. The group's use of ayahuasca in ritual context, while permitted by the Brazilian regulatory authorities, was sub subjected to provisional review. Following this 1991 conference, McKenna returned to the U.S. and drafted a proposal describing the, objecti the objectives of the study that was to become known as the Hawaska Project. Initially, the objective was to submit the proposal to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, 
but as the proposal took shape, it became clear that funding for the study would be unlikely to originate from any government agency. Not only were there legal, logistical, and political problems with securing NIH funds for a study to be carried out in Brazil, it was also clear that given the nature of, the, of government drug policy, the NIH would not look favorably on a proposal that was not aimed at demonstrating serious harmful consequences resulting from the use of the psychedelic drug. This is something that is often talked about when we're in reference to NIH drug studies, they always want to study the they want to study the negative aspects of the drug. They don't want to study the positive aspects of the drug. Interesting. Let's see here if there's any. Let's go ahead. So that's pretty much brings us almost up to modern day times. McKenna was a Terence McKenna, our Lord and Savior, was a great advocate for uh, ayahuasca, and he did a lot of great research and. He shed a lot of light onto the subject. So let's go ahead and move on from the antique history into the more, let's move on from the history in general. Let's talk about a little more modern use. Uh, many new ayahuasca traditions have continued to grow like the spreading tendrils of the soul vine. Ayahuasca seems to adapt itself to the needs and intent of those who use it. Uh, the way the vine adapts its form to the shape of a tree on which it grows. At the turn of the 20th century, during the rubber boom, mestizo rubber ta tappers entered Amazonia. Because rubber had to be harvested from wild, separated trees, these men worked mostly alone in the forest. When these mestizos fell ill, they had to turn to Indian curanderos. Some of them ended up apprenticing to the curanderos and learning the ayahuasca practices. In other cases, mestizo rubber tappers were kidnapped by Indians and lived several years with them. From that, as the mestizo cities of Iquitos and Pucallpa grew, so did a mestizo ayahuasca tradition that blended indigenous ayahuasca practices with some Catholic worldview. The next branch of new ayahuasca tradition also came from a rubber tapper. The Afro-Brazilian Raimundo Irinho started Santo Daime, a church that blends African traditions with esoteric Christianity and ayahuasca. Santo Daime replaces the older practice of individual shamanism with a kind of group shamanism in which an entire group of people can perform healings collectively. I am not going to a retreat that practices Santo Daime, although they do practice group setting ayahuasca sessions. So I will be in session with at least four other people. I think there's going to be five of us total, not including shamans, so probably six or seven people total, including uh, shamans guiding the ceremony. Yet another tr ayahuasca tradition which began in the late 1980s but became stronger in the late 1990s is that of the Western psychedelic tradition. Within this tradition, a custom started of using the word ayahuasca to mean any combination of MAOI and DMT because the chemical action on the brain was what mattered. Their perspective was that ayahuasca was simply an orally active form of DMT, the B copy vine was merely the potentiator of the DMT, and that any combination of plants, or even pharmaceuticals and laboratory chemicals that similarly resulted in orally active DMT was basically the same as ayahuasca. Within the Western psychedelic tradition, the term ayahuasca is often used to refer to a brew made of peganum, peganum harmala and a DMT source, typically mimosa hostilis. Um, and mimosa hostilis root bark is generally how we here in the West acquire our pure freebase DMT. That's another story in and of itself. So much as we have want to do here in the West, um, we want to simplify and demystify things. Um, so, what we're basically what our what we've done in our culture is taken out the shamanistic or the spiritual aspect of ayahuasca and broken it down to its basic components: an MAOI and a psychoactive hallucinogen drug DMT. And we've said to hell with all of the traditional trappings and, uh, what's that beeping noise? It's gone now. Okay. I'm not crazy. I know I heard a beeping. Maybe I'll be on the recording. I mean, that's not like it's something strange. I'm in the middle of a CT control room, so... Anywho, uh, you know, as we have want to do here in the West, we sort of bastardized this uh, traditional indigenous idea. I myself notwithstanding, uh, you know, I've been a psychonaut for 10, 15 years now, and uh, I've done all kinds of different extractions, and I've found ways to acquire 
various psychedelics because of their illegality um, on my own, for my own personal exploration. But I've never thought to utilize ayahuasca here at home. I always knew that I wanted my first ayahuasca and possibly every ayahuasca experience, but certainly my first to be in the natural habitat where it's supposed to be. Hence why I'm flying to Peru tomorrow. Oh, I hear a baby crying. We're going to have to go save a baby here in a second. Oh, yes. Um, so, this is kind of where we're at now in uh, ayahuasca today, especially in the West. We're going to move into like the Peruvian ayahuasca industry and uh, all that towards the end. But right now, I kind of want to go into the effects and what ayahuasca actually does to people and how ayahuasca actually works and some of the archetypes found in the ayahuasca space or the ayahuasca dimension. Uh, ayahuasca affects us most deeply by acting as an intuitive natural medicine that functions multidimensionally. Therefore, the healing process that comes from your ayahuasca experience is completely relative to your current state of being, both physically and energetically. So over the past month, uh, and specifically intensely for the last two weeks, I have been abstaining from certain practices, foods, and almost all um, substances, even up to and notwithstanding caffeine and CBD for the last two weeks. No alcohol, no caffeine, no CBD. This is for twofold reasoning. First, I don't want to have any unwanted interactions between the plant materials, alkaloids, and compounds consumed in the ayahuasca physically within my body. So I don't want anything that I'm consuming to have a bad reaction with anything in the ayahuasca brew. And secondly, because I'm trying to prepare my mind, my body, and my soul to undergo this experience, which may and is oftentimes difficult and challenging, um, by abstaining from certain practices and certain vices, we'll say. Um, although I haven't done the best job, I feel fairly confident that I'm prepared to the best of my ability. I have slipped up here and there, particularly in my diet. I should have been more... Um, I should have been more stringent with that. I've been very stringent concerning the um, ingestion of substances, however. Um, and I think I'm about as prepared as I can be. I do have several different intentions that I'm taking, but I want to leave myself open because from everything I've read... I also want to preface this with, although I do have a solid amount of psychedelic experience under my belt or mystical experiences via psychedelics, I understand that ayahuasca is to be respected and is by all accounts, above and beyond any other psychedelic that I have encountered, perhaps other than freebase DMT. Um, so, through the lens, I'm speaking to you here through an empirical lens as well as I can without the actual experience having been undergone myself. That's why this is part one, and after I come back, I'm going to bring you part two and tell you about some of the insights and about some of my personal experience that I've had during this uh, journey, during this adventure. Um, so, I've done the best that I that I know to do, and I feel in my heart and my mind that I'm ready to do this. Uh, although there is a bit of nervousness there, as there always is when undergoing the uh, psychedelic experience. There's always this twinge of nervousness, of uncertainty, of unease, because they are quite often very intense experiences, very, um, not, I'm looking for the word, I'm blanking on, not, not chaotic or erratic, but they're just very uncertain experiences. You never know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I feel calm, I feel ready, I feel good, um, there are certain things that are bothering me right now, but I think those are things that I need to take with me anyway. Um, I, I'm not under undue duress. I'm not under a lot of stress. I'm not. I'm not beating myself up over anything right now. But there are certain things that I know that I want to take with me. However, I'm trying to keep my mind open to not be too, my mind and my heart open to not be too dead set on, this is what I'm going there for, I have to get these answers. Um, because I think I'm going to be given 
and I think I'm going to receive what I need and not necessarily what I want. So in other words, this medicine works on you on every level, and wherever you're at in your emotional, mental, or physical state, you will get exactly what you need. Holding expectations about how, how ayahuasca affects you or what your ayahuasca experiences will be like is less useful than being open, curious, and simply trusting that you will receive the healing exactly right for you in that moment. And this is where I'm at right now. I'm going with an open mind, an open heart, a curiosity, and I know that I've been called to do this. I've known it for years, um, and I I'm ready. I'm as ready as I can be, and I think that my preparations, although imperfect, are going to be honored, and I know that if I do have a challenging experience, that it's something that is necessary for me to have. That's why I wanted to be as best prepared and as at peace with my current mental status so that if I went down there to Peru and had an extremely difficult experience, then I couldn't chalk it up to not having prepared myself. So now I know that if I do have a difficult experience, it's an experience that is necessary for my growth. Yes, the ayahuasca effects can be awe-inspiring psychedelic visions, cosmic spiritual connection, and deep emotional journeys of release and discovery. You may access some of the most magical and profound spiritual insights, often reserved for the most advanced and dedicated spiritual practitioners. One of the great honors and privileges that Mother Ayahuasca offers to us is to experience this level of awareness. Mother Ayahuasca is truly a loving spirit, but she is also a teacher, and you will learn that nothing comes for free. You may see the error of your ways, habits and ways of being that do not serve you, maybe things that you've done in the past that you need to heal, and you can be shown the direct path to healing your life outside of ceremony, but in the end, you must do the work yourself and practice what you are taught in order to integrate the benefits and lessons that you receive. You may also experience distinctly physical healing. You may sense energy moving in the body, nausea, physical tension, or pleasure. At times you may think nothing is happening, however, be assured that when you drink, the medicine is working on very deep levels. As you become more clean and sensitive, you will likely develop a deeper relationship with the medicine and have a broader range of healing during your ayahuasca experiences over time. With each ceremony that you are blessed with in your life, you will become more clear in how to ask for specific information, be guided more clearly, and go deeper into your transformation. Ayahuasca affects you by scanning your being on all levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, seeking out that which is ready to be healed and released either energetically or physically through purging, vomiting, sweating, defecating, and even breath work. Ayahuasca is also known as La Purga, the purge, because one of the trademarks, hallmarks of the experience is profuse purging through various avenues of the human body, um, vomiting, sweating, defecating, breath work. Um, a lot of the times people claim that they have physically purged negative energies or even physical ailments from their bodies through um, these various avenues during the ayahuasca experience. Some of the effects and benefits of working in this way with ayahuasca include, but are by no means limited to, limited to deep, multi-level physical detoxification and healing of many physical conditions and traumas, rapid emotional processing and healing, personal insight to patterns, habits, and behaviors, release of negative psychological programs and illnesses, healing of anxiety and depression-related illnesses, spiritual awakening, expanded consciousness, and spiritual connection healing and connection with multi-dimensional aspects of yourself and all existence, and also wonderful creative inspiration. All those things sound pretty awesome to me. Looking for a little bit of all that. So let's talk about a little bit about healing with ayahuasca. Throughout the upper Amazon, there is a common belief that human beings, and particularly shaman, in particular shamans, have powerful urges to harm others. I don't want to talk about that. Believe me, dude. I have done so much research on this. I've read all about the negative aspects of it. And over the last couple of weeks, I've discontinued all my research, except for this uh, podcast here. Although I've already gone over all this information because basically I've decided that I've consumed all I can consume regarding this experience. And I need to go have it instead of you can read all day about things like this, but there's no substitute for doing it. 
Um, so I can't consume anymore. I've read books, of which I'll recommend a few at the end of this podcast. I read a couple different books on it, and uh, they were all really insightful and great. I'm glad I got an opportunity to explore them. Let's go ahead and talk about um, some people's actual experiences here. Once again, I'm just giving you the extent of my knowledge concerning the empirical evidence that I've gathered thus far. I will be bringing you my own personal experience on the next portion, the next episode of the podcast when I return. This is from an article by Dr. Gabor Mate, who is, I believe, an addiction specialist. Ayahuasca also shows great um, potential for treating addiction as do many other psychedelics. This is um, an article that centerfolds people's, other people's experiences concerning uh, their ayahuasca journey. So let's hear some, from some other people um, about their healing experiences. Quote, I hadn't seen my brother in person for almost seven years, Celine wrote, in quote, recounting her second ayahuasca ceremony. I remember that night, uh, I remember on that night, Dave, who was the ayahuascaro, removed the space in my heart I had filled up with brotherly replacements. I cried so hard while it was happening. It truly felt like heart surgery with his songs as the anesthesia. Uh, pause for a second. The songs that they sing are known as Icaros. These are utilized throughout the ceremonies um, to guide and drive the visions and the journey during the ayahuasca experience. And what we heard at the very top of the episode um, was an example of an Icaros being sung. As he was working over my heart with his hands and voice, I would feel the pain of the substitutes leaving and the ache for my actual brother and then the huge sense of relief that there was all this space for him. Near the core of us, near the core of all of us wounded human beings, there is an emptiness we fill. We fill it with an artificial self-image, with compulsions and behavior that try to conquer the gap by getting us love, attention, value, power, and meaning. Try as we might, these simulacra can never satisfy our true needs. As Celine discovered, once we are able to remove the false substitutes with which we seek to obliterate that aching emptiness, space opens up for who we are, for the true self. That is for love, belonging, and relief of becoming, again, truly vulnerable. For we are vulnerable and open once before the world hurt us so much that we had to abandon authenticity to escape this pain. The words healing and, and health find their root in the Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness, no accident, since the source of much illness is precisely the loss of wholeness induced by trauma, whether subtle or overt. That loss, too, is the source of the distress that many of us seek so fervently to escape by the many seductions Western culture offer to the emotionally and spiritually bereft. As the spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle has written, basically, all emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond the name and form. Because of its undifferentiated nature, it is hard to find a name that precisely describes this emotion. Fear comes close, but apart from a continuous sense of threat, it also includes a deep sense of abandonment and incompleteness. It may be best to use a term that is as undifferentiated as the basic emotion and simply call it pain. One of the many tasks of the mind is to fight or remove the, that emotional pain, which is one of the reasons for its incessant activity but all it can ever achieve is to cover it up temporarily. What Celine found, what many people are able to find aided by plant teachers and other effective psychedelic modalities under proper guidance, is at least some taste, some glimpse, some experience of that true self that we are before, that we, are before we became attached to what never was us, the name and form the world gave us, and with which we identify and hold on to so desperately. And therein lies the possibility of liberation, to become ourselves once again, or more accurately, to remember at last who we always were. Robine, a woman who since childhood had considered herself disfigured owing to a neurological condition that caused an asymmetry in her visage, found that her beauty is not defined by the configuration of her facial muscles. Quote, Ayahuasca showed me that the deepest point of nourishment in me, what makes me feel alive, is my heart's desire and capacity to connect with people in their dark corners. At the same time, I have the desire and capacity to connect with people from a place of beauty in me, the place in me that allows me to see their bravery, courage, and possibility. I learned that beauty is not a happening or an experience. 
beauty is something that is in me, a lens through which I am able to see the world and the people around me. I still want that smile, but the smile is not what would make me beautiful or the thing to rely on to help me express or connect to others. I discovered that the gentlest acts of self-compassion are the greatest assets to connecting to beauty, being empathetic, energetic, and intentional in my own way and in my work with others. What is it about psychedelics that offers such gifts? Why, as a Western-trained physician, do I find the healing retreats I lead with the ayahuasca brew the most exciting work I engaged in? This is uh, Dr. Mate speaking. Even though I do so only two or three weeks a year, why do many others follow the same path? In the mind-identified culture of the left-brained, industrialized world, we have forgotten that true wisdom arises from deeper within us than our conscious thoughts and formal learning. We forget, in fact, that our conscious thoughts and bookish learning often mask our hidden fears, motives, and pain. And they also distance us from our innate desire to connect with that ineffable something that is greater than the egoic little self that is driven to control our inner and outer realities. By manifesting the mind, the fundamental meaning of the word psychedelic, the plant teachers and their modern man-made relatives takes beyond, beneath, and above the shallow perceptions that govern us into the deeper truths of ourselves, of nature, of the world. Rachel, a woman in her 40s who has been undergoing treatment for advanced breast cancer, wrote me recently about her ayahuasca experience. Quote, in ceremony, I was able to confront ghosts that haunted me most of my life. I won't say that they were eradicated, but my thoughts and feelings toward myself, my life, my relationships are viewed with deep compassion. And I now see those situations and people as teachers that lead me to heal. And if you're interested in this, you can do your research elsewhere on the Internet. There are literally dozens of documentaries, books, uh, hundreds of web pages, if not thousands um, all sorts of trip reports and experience reports um, and healing uh, discussions of healings uh, via ayahuasca. So there's so much out there available for that. And if you're interested, I would encourage you to look into that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the universal archetypes of ayahuasca dreams and maybe make a little sense of some of these visions. Quite often, something that crops up during the ayahuasca experience um, are visions of jungle fauna and flora. One of the most famous archetypes of the vision is uh, Amazonian wildlife, including serpents, jungle cats, monkeys, and rainforest plants. Sometimes you interact with the animal or plant spirit, and sometimes it is a simply a lingering, solitary image. Research suggests that these jungle visions are one of the most common, and I can attest to this in my own ayahuasca visions. This is speaking from the point of view of the author of this article in the uh, on the Psychedelic Times website. Quote, I've seen jaguars and marmoset monkeys blinking at me behind closed eyes, motioning for me to follow them. This archetype might be represented in conjunction with others found um, on in one woman's vision list of, quote, a young girl made of green plants. I had a whole conversation with her in a language that I don't know. Behind her were dozens of plant people watching us and participating, in quote. Uh, another common theme is of gilded palaces, ancient cities, and civilizations. This, I can say, I have seen um, these archetypes crop up in my experimentation with the Yopo snuff I described earlier, as well as the Freebase DMT that I described earlier. I have seen these uh, fractal palaces and ancient cities sprawl out before me. I saw this once on LSD. I think I described this in a previous episode where I told a story of a vision on LSD where I saw my brain unfold like infinitely and I kind of zoomed out. And it was like a map, but it was also like a giant city. Like my brain had unfolded infinitely into this massive ancient city. Um, so this is an archetype that I often see in my own psychedelic experiences of ancient cities and civilizations, celestial beings, and majestic environments. Just as it's curious that a person taking ayahuasca outside of the Amazon would see jungle flora and fauna, uh, the author notes that indigenous people who've never left the Amazon, Amazon also see, quote, magnificent palaces, items which are definitely not part of the Amazonian or South American milieu. 
A man quoted in this article named Gary describes a huge, organic, intricate, complex gate that appeared in an initial vision. While this image was while this image was awe-inspiring, uh, other people's visions of palaces or cities can range from the celestial to the macabre. And this kind of harkens back to what I told you about my vision that I had using the Yopo snuff. That's a good way to describe what I saw. It was kind of like a city almost inside of this spiraling t tunnel this like geometric fractal city but it was kind of macabre is a good way to describe it so not scary or not evoking fear but just somewhat like dark and ominous although i didn't feel fear it just looked distinctly ominous um, Gary shares another vision that related to his girlfriend at the time, this one much darker but full of meaning. Quote, I saw a castle that was oozing out black ooze from the windows. I knew instinctively that this castle was representative of my hometown social scene. Being around a lot, being around a, a lot of people with psychic baggage, a lot of alcoholics, a lot of people with serious addiction issues. I remember trying to reach into the castle to grab my girlfriend and take her out of it, but when I would put my hand in the castle to get her out, the ooze would crawl up my arm and engulf me. Spooky! I couldn't save her from the world she'd chosen to be connected with, and the more that I did, the more I tried to, the more I was getting roped into that world. People often refer to ayahuasca as Mother Ayahuasca because of the feminine, nurturing spirit they encounter in ceremonies. A friend of the author, Margaret, describes a vision that epitomized this, this sense of ancient feminine wisdom or the divine feminine. For her, she saw herself fall in love, marry, become pregnant, raise five children together, grow old, and die together. She said, quote, I felt what it was like to give birth to children, and in other visions, giving birth to myself. I gained a greater sense of femininity and what it means to be a woman and to be human. Ayahuasca also often comes to people in the form of a giant snake. Laura Charlotte of the Garden of Peace Ayahuasca and Master Plant Healing Center explains her own experience with this feminine energy. Quote, For me, she's perceived as a huge green and black boa constrictor that's wrapping around my body and through my body, dancing with me and dialoguing with me. Anima Mundi, or the Web of Interconnectivity, is one of the most interesting visions described um, by ayahuasca experiencers. A universal spirit spirit to which we are all connected. Now, this is kind of a universal theme in most psychedelic experiences. I feel like if you're on a high enough dose of any psychedelic, at some point you will come to this realization or you will come to this sensation of the feeling of oneness with everything or that everything is interconnected. This has often happened to me in psychedelic experience. The author describes the web as, quote, translucent strings like the threads of a spider web that tie everything which is seen under the intoxication with open eyes. The divine does indeed exist. And um, it is described as further, further described as a translucent web that interlinks everything and sustains all of the existence. I've seen very similar, um, I've seen visions that are hallucinations that are similar, but they it's not so much the vision that leads you to this realization of oneness. It's the feeling and the sense that you get when you see these um, when you see these hallucinations um, that you have somehow discovered oneness. So those are some of the universal archetypes often experienced within the actual uh, ayahuasca experience. Hopefully, I'll experience some of those positive archetypes during my. Um, own experiences in the coming week. Finally, let's talk a little bit about the ayahuasca industry and um, the Peruvian the Peruvian ayahuasca industry. Imagine you're in a simple wooden house in the suburbs of Iquitos, the largest city in the Peruvian Amazon, and drinking a bitter dark brown liquid. The lights go off. Half an hour later, the most extraordinary visions begin. Fast forward four hours and it's all over. You've seen Christ and Buddha and you've almost been moved to tears by the incantations of a curandero and all the deep throat vomiting you've been doing in his garden. What? I don't know what they're talking about there. Getting kind of outside my realm of interest. 
It's about connecting to the natural world, says Romulo Signore Ochavano, a Shipibo Kirandero who drinks ayahuasca to communicate with the spirit world and understand his patients' illnesses. It's one technique for us. It's the same as a doctor in a clinic with equipment that enables himself enables him to see if someone's ill. Where is the illness? The curandero sees which plants are good for curing that person. Over the last 25 years, however, ayahuasca has gone, gone global, with thousands of people learning about it and drinking it too, myself being one of those people about to join that fold. Curanderos are traveling abroad and ayahuasca is being exported. In Peru, major centers including the Cuzco region and the cities of Pucallpa and Tarapoto, but it is Iquitos that attracts most interest. Every year, thousands descend on the city whose centers offer ayahuasca have sprung up in the surrounding forest. While lodges offering jungle tours or nature tours include ayahuasca as well. The majority of these visitors are foreigners. Estimates of the number of centers in the, Iqu in the Iquitos region offering ayahuasca vary from 30 to 100. Then there are jungle lodges in the Curanderos living in the city, like Juan Tangoa Paima and surrounding villages. The latter cater primarily for locals, although visitors can seek them out as well. Why are so many foreigners, particularly Westerners, coming to Iquitos to drink ayahuasca? Some are seeking healing for depression, alcohol-related issues, tobacco, drug addictions, arthritis, diabetes, diabetes skin diseases, cancer, and more. Quote, most of the treatment we're carrying out is for trauma, says Matthew Watherston, founder of the Temple of the Way of Light, a center two hours from Iquitos. The drive is often the crises that people feel in day-to-day -day life, manifested on a psychological, emotional, or physical level. Ultimately, these are all symptoms. The origin typically comes from an energetic imbalance or disorder. Others drink ayahuasca because they're curious and want to learn about it, or they're looking for a new direction in life. Then there are those who, attracted by the often extraordinary visions, think it's another tourist activity or recreational drug. That's an idea many experienced with ayahuasca vehemently dismiss. If anyone thinks it's in the same category as a cruise, well, the first drink will quickly change their minds, says Peter Gorman, a journalist offering trips into the forest that includes swimming with dolphins, foraging for wild food, hiking, and ayahuasca. It's very serious medicine, very deep, very quick. We do an intense screening process to make sure we don't have any psychedelic tourists, says Gomez. Right now the ayahuasca industry is booming, but we want to make sure that the people who come are people that have a strong intention and desire to heal. Fundamental to ayahuasca's appeal is that unlike Western medicine, it is believed to address the true causes of illnesses and make no distinction between mind and body. Ayahuasca practitioners see the physical manifestation of some mental, emotional, psychological, or energetic disorder. Reports of successes are common, particularly with depression, with depression, traumas, and addictions. Brendan, a former U.S. Marine, was overweight and suffering from radiation poisoning, hypothyroidism, and nerve damage to his left leg after a training accident and massive guilt after not serving in Iraq. But 12 days at the temple transformed his life and got him off the Oxycontin and other medications he had been taking daily for years. He says he lost more than 45 kilograms, his thyroid gland now functions normally, and he is fully healed from the radiation. That's what the fuck I'm talking about, bro. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get my body in sync with my mind. That's something, that's kind of like a general intention I'm taking with me to sync more closely my physicality with my mentality. Something I've been working on for years, but I still haven't mastered. I am overweight. I have been my whole life. I lost a lot of weight at the beginning of the year, and I've gained it almost all back. <clears throat> and I know how to do it, but what I want is uh, less than quick patch-ups and crash diets and spurts of energy and spurts of dedication. What I want to do is develop a new relationship between my mind, my body, food, exercise, all of the above. So that's one thing I'm really looking forward to um, taking and trying to present or have... Uh, have dealt with during my ayahuasca experience. Um, so that in a nutshell is, um, you know, what's going on in Peru right now concerning ayahuasca tourism in the industry. It's a big booming industry over there. Um, it brings in a lot of money. Some of these, you know, the, these retreat centers are generally quite expensive. The place where I'm going is very reasonably priced. It's one of the reasons why I sought it out. And I also wanted to go somewhere that is 
<clears throat> going to be traditional and low key basically is the best way to describe. I didn't want to go. They have, dude, they have like literal fucking resorts that you can go to that have like massages and all this other bullshit. You know, I wanted to keep it simple and go to a good place to experience ayahuasca with safe conditions and experienced people. And I believe I found that in Etnicas Ayahuasca Retreat Center in Cuzco, Peru. I'll be more than happy to do a full review of it when I return. Um, they have excellent reviews online, and I'm really excited to go there. We're going to go ahead and close this out here. Um, we're going to finish up with a word from our Lord and Savior. Um, oh, no, I thought I had Terrence McKenna queued up. Actually, we're going to go out with a word from Graham Hancock, who is a anthropologist, author, ethnobotanist. He's into all kind of cool shit, man. If you don't know who Graham Hancock is, check him out. But uh, he's a big proponent for ayahuasca. We're going to hear a brief word from him to close out the segment. And guys, um, I love you guys so much. This podcast is, um, I love doing this show. I'm really excited for this experience. I'm hoping and believing that I'm going to come back with something cool to share with you guys in the coming weeks after... um, this experience. So, in the meantime, you guys keep it raw, Castian. I fucking love you, and we'll see you next time, baby. Be good. Over the last five or six years, I've been I've been privileged to drink uh, the Amazonian visionary brew uh, ayahuasca uh, many many times, and I've observed that uh, that that ayahuasca has come out of the jungle, come out of the Amazon jungle, and is spreading her tentacles all around the world, and each and every human being who she touches is changed and transformed uh, by the contact. I would go so far as to say uh, that if we really want change in the future, we should make it an absolutely mandatory condition of employment for any head of state uh, that they must have 10 ayahuasca sessions uh, before they're given the job. Uh, I think that if that were the case, we would find our politicians less greedy, less ego-driven, less manipulative, less controlling, more open, more willing to create a better world, willing in their hearts rather than just in their words.